Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You are listening to Tech Time with Summer's F1, presented by Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. I'm your host, Matt Trumpets, and this episode is called The Episode That Almost Wasn't. And I'm joined today by the hardest working man in Tech F1, Matthew Summerfield, assistant technical editor at motorsport.com, the man with a plan from Techie Stan, and known to all the cool kids on to Intertubes as Summers F1. It has been a while, Summers, but it's good to see you again. And it's very good to see you, Matt. And as you say, it has been a while, but uh, here we are. Indeed, here we are. And it's not like we've been sitting here for 20 minutes while I worked out all my technical problems. Nope, nope, that never happened. But before we go on, I do need to remind everyone we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. So where I would like to start, if I could, is we have been over through the teams and the drivers, uh, but... That's more on the narrative performance side. You are our technical expert. And I'm just really curious to get your take on the kinds of years the teams had, because sometimes results and performances don't necessarily represent what's been achieved technically. So uh, maybe we should start with team time and summer's power rate plus, which is, I think, what we're going to call this segment. And um, who would you put at the, and we'll talk sharp end in midfield, in the sharp end? At the front of the field, who would you put at the forefront? Well, I don't, obviously, you can't go much further than Mercedes at the sharp end because, you know, the, again, they were a team that we thought that would be under pressure for this season, uh, but they've managed to pull something exceptionally out of the bag. Uh, they may have struggled at points throughout the season. And I think that is the key narrative that perhaps is, is often missed out with. 
uh, this season for, for Mercedes is the fact that they did struggle throughout uh, and they triumphed over that adversity to, to bring the results home, to, to get the, the championships for both themselves and for Hamilton. Uh, and so obviously they, they are the team that everybody's chasing. And, uh, you know, when, they, when, when a team like that comes up against trouble uh, and they're able to get out of corners like they did, uh, you know, you can't really go much further than, than applaud that. Indeed. So it, it occurs to me that in the field, we sort of have Mercedes-type teams, and we obviously have the Red Bull teams, and then we have sort of the Ferrari teams. Um, who else would you say follows in Mercedes' footsteps, technically speaking, and how did they do relative to the, um, I don't know, shining example on the hill? Well, I think the interesting narrative in terms of development that always grows from from the start of the season is how teams tend to adapt to the tyres. Uh, and that obviously then dictates their performance throughout the rest of the season. That's an underlying factor that's obviously overlooked in some respects. So the biggest updates we always see come around the Spanish Grand Prix uh, in order to cater the car to the, the requirements that the, the driver has that season to the tyres. Now, obviously, this year, Red Bull put a huge amount of uh, development into the car at an earlier stage than they ordinarily would do. Uh, so I think what we did see with Red Bullies, we saw them sort of bring a huge amount of development at the start of the season, which caught them up to the tail end of the, the lead pack, which obviously Ferrari, everybody thought were going to be the, the runaway leaders at the start of the season, didn't actually materialise. Uh, but Red Bull, for me, were the overachievers at the start of the season because of the way that they set their programme, uh, their development programme. That did start to peter out at, at certain stages because obviously, you know, you've put a huge amount of resource into that early stage of the season and you've got to try to balance that somehow. So that would have perhaps been a little bit different for Red Bull because they were, they're not used to taking that development tra- trajectory. Uh, so for me, they were a great uh, intro to the season. They did peter out for a, a stage and then they sort of started to get back on top of things. Obviously, the the real uh, story behind what's gone on with Red Bull as well is obviously Honda, which, as both myself and yourself, Matt, have said in the past, we knew Honda would come good at some point, um, and it seems to have obviously flourished with the partnership they have with Red Bull. Okay, so I will immediately wander down a certain garden path um, and say, of their late season resurgence, how much of that was due to Honda? And how much of that was due to, I'll do that thing that I know you hate because they influence each other. And that's the first thing you're going to tell me, but I'll do it anyway. How much was Honda based and how much was Red Bull based in terms of just simply, let's say their aero development or the suspension or whatever cool gugaws and knickknacks they might've come up with. And beyond that, we're saying Honda is there or thereabouts, but are they really all the way there? Or are they still kind of a smidge off of where they might wish to be? I think they're always going to be a slight smidge off where they want to be because they're, they're not at the lead, the lead end of the pack. I think, again, what we have to consider here as well, though, is that Red Bull have always been exceptionally good at utilising their car when they are underpowered compared to their uh, relative uh, rivals. So, you know, even in the Renault, dominance that they had they didn't have peak power uh, when you compared them to the ferrari and the mercedes of the time so they've always been able to uh, make up for that with chassis aero etc but in terms of the late end of the season i think there's several things that have kind of converged at that point 
yes, clearly Honda have overachieved throughout last season. And I think at that point when they did overachieve, they then started to continue to, to, to gain performance, which is perhaps not where they were expecting to be at the start of the season. Uh, and obviously that paired in with the fact that the chassis was working at a, a high end, uh, the, the change of driver uh, throughout the season as well, perhaps had an influence over the direction of uh, performance because then you would have perhaps taken the pressure off their second driver and given more responsibility to Max in terms of being able to develop the car. So I think there's a lot that's gone on behind the scenes at Red Bull. Um, exceptionally good season for them in terms of being able to catch the tail end of the other the other two that, that should have been off in the distance to them if we are looking compared to last season. So for me, Red Bull have had a, an exceptional season and I do hope that they're able to carry that over uh, into 2020 uh, because I, I do think that then we might really see some decent racing from the start of the season. All right. I, I will follow up on that. Now, at the beginning of the season, uh, did Red Bull, they went more the traditional front wing route. Uh, in other words, uh, adapted for this year's regulations but similar to what they ran uh, last year in, in 2018. But we saw certainly Mercedes make some moves towards the outwash instead of overwash, or am I using the right words? I'm probably not, but you know what I'm talking about. And this is like me derailing my own notes instantaneously, just because I was curious. We sort of had such extremes at the beginning of the year with the front wings. We talked about Red Bull. So let's start with them. Where did they start? Where did they wind up? And where do you think the point of convergence is going to be next year? Because we don't have an arrow change again until 21. Yeah. So, so basically, the, the two terms that you're looking for are loaded and unloaded front wings. The unloaded wing is what we saw from the likes of Ferrari, uh, Alfa Romeo and Toro Rosso at the start of the season. And that's at the very far end of the spectrum. Uh, and what most people would assume is catering more for outwash. You've then got the likes of Red Bull and Mercedes who were at the other end of the spectrum where they were using, as you say, wings that were almost in the same design aspect as the, the 2018 front wings uh, to, to try to, to get that outwash that, that you're talking about. So Red Bull, they started with a loaded wing. Yeah, so, so Red Bull started with the loaded wing this season alongside Mercedes. But all of the teams have sort of converged throughout the season. Well, I talked about this uh, at the very beginning of the season. It was something that we anticipated would happen anyway. Uh, you know, two very different designs, and you will always get some kind of convergence towards the, the, the middle of that uh, array. And what we've seen predominantly is the loaded style wings being moved more towards the unloaded style, which is what we've seen from Ferrari, Alfa, uh, and Toro Rosso to start with. But the likes of Mercedes and Red Bull didn't go full unloaded like the other guys. So, you know, we're still playing between two concepts effectively. Uh, and what was interesting towards the end of the season is that Red Bull did test uh, an unloaded style front wing, as did Mercedes. So they clearly got an eye on their design aspect for 2020 and how they were looking at perhaps introducing a more unloaded style front wing uh, going forward. Now, obviously, the unloaded style front wing versus the loaded front wing is all down to how much drag you have on the car, how much downforce. So you're always in a trade-off situation. 
and, and obviously the teams are trying to get the best performance in totality. So it, it all comes down to what works for each individual car. So I do think that we'll still see uh, an array of different wing designs for 2020, but there is a, a convergence that's already started to happen this year. All right. And I'm going to assume that that move towards the unloaded wing, you know, let's say if it's like 100 to zero, we've, we've, we've gone, they've gone to like 65 and the others haven't gone as far. Whatever. I'll throw some numbers out there that don't really mean anything. But that wouldn't have anything to do with the top end speed that Ferrari demonstrated so, uh, so remarkably throughout the season, would it? It has some bearing, yes, because of drag. Uh, you, from an aero philosophy point of view, they were doing something very different at the, at the other end of the spectrum to the likes of Red Bull uh, and Mercedes. So, and they are obviously trying to move down the scale towards them in that respect. You know, it's all to do with how the the uh, front wing is used to manage the wake that comes off the front tire, uh, how that impacts the the downforce that's created by the floor because of how it seals the edge. Uh, and how that impacts then the rear wing's performance and the wake that's generated by the, the the rear wheels as well. So yes, to to some degree, you are obviously going to have an impact on the amount of drag that is created because that's what these front wings predominantly do. To be honest, is shape airflow. That you know they're not complete downforce generators. Uh, a lot of what the teams were trying are trying to do is manipulate the airflow across the the entire map of the car. So you end up with a better drag to downforce ratio. So that's predominantly what they're looking for. And obviously that's why we see so many varying designs. What I personally found interesting about the the difference between a 2018 and a 2019 wing is that we're still seeing a huge amount of performance from these cars uh, from 2018 to 2019. And they were expected to be slowed down uh, quite significantly because the amount of additional drag that should have been put on the cars by the, the new regulations, but we didn't see that. The teams have outwitted the FIA once more. Uh, they've outwitted uh, the technical working group that originally came up with this concept to the point where we, we've ended up with a car that is effectively net at the same sort of performance level as the old ones with less uh, available to them in terms of the tools that they have to, to, to manufacture the airflow. You know, you look at a 2018 specification front wing and it had cascades and canards and all sorts of aerodynamic flicks on on the front wing to try to manage that airflow around the front tyre. Yet the teams have been able to to get around that factor and, and still get that extra level of performance. So we've heard a lot of complaining from the teams about how restricted they're going to be if the 21 regulations. And yet when you restrict them, they immediately turn up and they're much faster. And I think this this was part of the Pirelli saga. They were much faster than anyone anticipated them being. Um, and they have so much less to work with. So are is it a little bit uh, boy who cried wolf with these regulations coming up, the big change in 21? There is and there will always be time to be found when you give a lot of clever people time, money and a lot of really fancy computers, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the, the big difference between uh, the, the 2019 shift and the 2021 regulations is that we're talking about an entirety of a car that's been completely remapped and the regulations are being remapped around a specific, very specific design. So there's a, there's a 
uh, there is a much narrower design window for the 2021 car. I'm not going to completely get into it right now because uh, it, it would be 10 shows on its own right. Um, but obviously, yes, 2019 was really a readdress of the 2017 regulations, which was the wrong direction for Formula One in, in many respects because they tried to in, increase the speed of the cars, which, as we all know, is problematic when you're trying to deal with dirty wake and downforce. So, you know, they went in the wrong direction. The 2019 rules were trying to recoup some of the issues that they caused by the 2017 rules. But unfortunately, the teams are too clever for that. And they've outwitted the FIA once more in able to provide cars that have a level sort of performance to 2018's cars. I'm expecting the, the gains to be roughly the same again for 2020 because many of the teams will have found, you know, grey areas within their own designs this year that they will then go on to improve for next year and we'll have faster cars once more. Okay, we'll have faster cars. Uh, now I'm going to loop back to something. You said we talked about loaded and unloaded wings being the two basic design styles. And it it does not escape my notice that the cars with unloaded wings go very, very fast in a straight line, but are not necessarily the greatest at the turny bits. And the cars that do have the loaded front wing are perhaps kind of the opposite. They may not be as fast in a straight line, but once you get them, once the pavement doesn't go straight, uh, that's where they find a lot of their lap time. Now, you're telling me that the front wing is more about shaping the air downstream. So is there still a certain amount of load that helps turn the car for the cars with the loaded front wings? And if it's not the front wings, would I be right in thinking it's the barge board area then? where a lot of this downforce is generated to help get the cars to turn in properly and to keep them from understeering uh, when they go through turns. A lot to unpack there, but yes, essentially, uh, the front wing, you are always going to have to commit to uh, uh, a trade-off between downforce and drag because of what you were trying to do from the front wing to influence the rest of the car. And as you say, it's very important the role in which the front wing plays in the likes of the barge board development because it's all a daisy chain. You know, you, if you make an error at the front wing, that is going to impact the design down the rest of the car. And I do fear that perhaps Ferrari fell into that hole at points. Uh, we've seen them in the past have those chain of command errors where they'll they'll bring a new design and it doesn't quite work and then they chase their tail trying to make everything line up so that everything works together now what was interesting for me at the uh, at a certain point in the, the season i think it was around spa if memory serves me correctly ferrari bought an update which changed the overall package of their car in terms of its ability to generate downforce now it changed the centre of pressure. And the, what they did change, and it's something that Mercedes have been running for a long time, 2016 perhaps, 2017, I think it's 2017 actually, is the nose cape because it grabs a huge amount of performance in terms of the shift in, in aerodynamic performance from front to rear. So, and, and, and creates this link, as I'm talking about, in terms of aero uh, between the front end to the rear end. So when... Ferrari added that to their car. They suddenly gained some additional front-end downforce that they'd lost by running an unloaded front wing and couldn't gain by simply adding more flap, flap angle on the design because of 
intrinsically how that front wing worked and how it worked overall with their philosophy to reduce drag on the car. So uh, it's always a trade-off is the, the simple answer uh, between what you want in terms of downforce, what you want in drag, and, and obviously how each part interacts with the next one. Okay. Um, we've brought up Ferrari now. We've talked a little bit about Red Bull. We talked a little bit about Mercedes. Let's talk about Ferrari. It's going to be hard because the expectations at the start of the season for them were so high because they had a really good test. But then everybody forgets about the last day or two of the test where something mysteriously stopped working. It was a tire blowout, but I think it was actually a suspension. It was a rim failure, which is probably related to the suspension. And it turns out that hid a larger problem they really had to fight the whole first half of the year. Yeah, and I think we've come across this uh, kind of scenario before, Matt, with the likes of McLaren. Uh, and a number of years ago, they tested very well uh, and then realised that they were running in perhaps a, a trim that wasn't actually possible for racing conditions. Uh, and I think we've ventured into that sort of area with uh, Ferrari this season. Uh, I think their biggest struggle was the fact that they thought they were so far ahead in the test and their performance relative to everybody else at that stage seemed exceptional. Uh, but they then struggled with this problem, suspension-wise, tyre-wise, uh, that then had an impact at the start of the season. Uh, how that manifested itself in terms of what was actually broken on the car, let's say. Uh, we'll use the term broken. I'm not quite sure how you would say otherwise. Uh, I, I'm not sure, to be honest. You know, There was something that, as you say, just wasn't quite right between the, the the test, the start of the test, and by the time they got to Australia, they clearly discovered something um, that, that sapped performance. And whether that was caused by uh, outside influence, i.e. somebody having a technical directive uh, pushed in, in line in order that their performance was curtailed, or whether it was an internal problem that Ferrari then had to overcome in order to to try to regain that performance. I think there's a bit of both going on there. Fair enough. All right, so before we move on from our season wrap of the top three teams, how about we go to the lightning round and just name one thing for me that you either felt was disastrous or amazing that each team did, Red Bull, Mercedes, and Ferrari? Uh, again, I think it comes down to weight of development and the way in which each of those teams went around their season uh, because they were all imp impacted in different ways and they were all trying to react against one another effectively. So they all did an exceptional job, but in very different stages of the season. And that all ties into how the development path of each of those teams works with one another and how they started to unlock performance on the tyres. We, we always have to go to tyres uh, in terms of gaining that performance. And then that has an impact, again, on how you set your car up and how much grip you're able to get, how much downforce you can then take off because you can gain speed from reducing drag. So, you know, as you go through the season, you're always going to have stages where you suddenly find something that allows you to unlock a, an area of setup or performance that wasn't previously previously available to you. Uh, and and that's what is always fascinating to me in this race between uh, the, the teams that are very close to one another. Because for, at one race, one team can be exceptional. 
but it's all down to how their car works at that very specific moment, whether it be down to tyre temperatures, whether it be down to the external temperatures even, or how the power unit is operating. But all of those teams did an exceptional job in, in, in 2019 uh, at managing various parts of their season. All right. Fair enough. I, I, I tried. I tried. The audience will have to admit that I tried. I was going for like one. Oh, they brought this really amazing wing. And but OK, fair enough. I, I can I can I can use Stevens that, but that's OK. Um, But let's move on. Let's talk a little bit about the midfield. If if we I mean, I don't want to substitute my judgment for your own. But if I look at the midfield, I'm going to start with McLaren. Just boy, did they get something right? Was it an accident? A happy miracle? or the result of hard work, and how much of that was down to Pat Fry stepping in, and how much of that was just simply down to, uh, I gotta, I guess, weeding the lawn a bit in terms of management structure to allow them to work at their optimum level? Yeah, I mean, I, I, the, the thing with McLaren is it's, it's a state of flux all the time. Um, that They've gone through some extremely large growing pains in the last few years in terms of being able to divorce themselves from Mercedes to start with and then moving on um, to Honda, that not working, and now on to Renault. And in a minute, they're going to be looking at, oh, we're going back to Mercedes. Uh, So it's all going full circle. But what I do think about McLaren last year is is that they, as you say, they made an exceptional job at re-establishing a chain of command, let's put it that way, I think there was a more direct uh, approach from McLaren this season in terms of how they went about their business. And that is down to the way that they've structured uh, their their staffing and their resources. But on top of that, I think they just built a very, I'm not I can't say basic, but they built a car that they knew would work and they built out from that. In the past, I think McLaren have been more, risky in their design approach they've always tried to have something that somebody else doesn't have and 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 basically it it comes to bite them because we've had them have trick rear suspensions we've had them try uh all sorts of miraculous design solutions that are always going to make them the best team on the grid but it never pans out whereas this year's car was a little more vanilla and i think that really helped them because they had a good base to work from. It allowed them to understand the tyres. Uh, and, and then they just started to gain performance from there on. All right. I'm not a team principal. But if I ran a team like McLaren or Haas or anything that wasn't a manufacturer, the first thing I would do is I would pick out the car that I wanted to copy and say, let's start with a simple, basic version of that and then see what we can do with it. Now. Does McLaren, as a car design, follow either Ferrari or Red Bull or Mercedes, or is it more of a pastiche? Have they just taken elements they like as they go along? This is a question I've been waiting to ask you for weeks and weeks and weeks now, so the audience will have to indulge me in it a bit. It's actually quite an outlier in many respects, the McLaren, because it sits firmly in the middle um, in terms of its design, because they started with a sort of more loaded front wing design um they moved to more of an uh, an unloaded design but they took a more aggressive approach to their front wing main plane uh step which changes the way in which the 
the wing operates. But on top of that, they've sort of got a middle of the road suspension setup. When you when you look at some of the more advanced systems that you've got on on the cars, uh, a bit further up the field from them, um, which isn't a bad thing based on what's coming in twenty twenty one. We will see this year the likes of. Uh, I know I'm t- going off on a tangent here, but we will see. Uh, some changes from the lead teams in that respect, and perhaps we'll cover that a bit later. Um, but yeah, for me, Matt, the 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 thing with McLaren is is that they just went for a very base car, uh, something that they knew they could understand, could map very well, get very good setup from. Uh, it wasn't really aggressively designed in one line or the other. You know, it it does have influences from some of the teams ahead of them, but. They're sort of treading their own path in many respects as well. So, yeah, I would call it a very middle-of-the-road design uh, and, and not too heavily led by the, the lead teams. Excellent. Let's talk a little bit now about who you – well, let's talk. I will let you choose where you want to go next in terms of interest in the midfield. I mean, for me, I'm looking at some of the personnel changes that Reno is, is, is having said a lot – and we've learned some interesting information at the end of the season about things that you think teams would have, and they actually don't. But where would you go if you were if you were going to pick the next team, not necessarily based on points, but in terms of just interest, technically, where would you go from McLaren? Because I was assuming McLaren was just like, you know, it, it's just a tap it. Couldn't well, miss with that. I, I, to be honest, Matt, I'd probably go to my two go-to teams when it comes to interesting technical elements. And that's Toro Rosso and Alfa Romeo. I nearly said Sauber, but no, Alfa Romeo. Uh, they, they always come up with novel designs, let's say. They come up with designs that are ahead of the game. And they come up with designs that are different to things that we see on other cars, but they make their own interpretation that are always quite interesting. Uh, just to pick a couple of things out in that respect, uh, on the Alfa Romeo, the nose fins, you know, you've got the L-shaped ones on the likes of the Mercedes. Um, Red Bull have a more uh, featured design. But the ones on the Alpha, they surprised me the most because they've got these three fins either side of the nose uh, to control that airflow. Uh, and it was just a, it's just a very nice-looking design from an aesthetic point of view and clearly, obviously, has a, a, an impact on the airflow. Uh, but I always find that, the Alfa Romeo design team, they always seem to design things that look particularly pretty for some reason, um, uh, and it does seem to be effective. Now, something that those two teams shared commonality on that hasn't cropped up on any of the other designs, but was started by Toro Rosso again, Toro Rosso always start trends, uh, is the rear wing end plate. We lost the louvers for 2019 that the teams have been using for nigh on a decade um, and were used to try to reduce the amount of drag that was created on the rear wing. Obviously, those were taken away to to increase that amount of drag uh, to try to reduce the performance of the car. Now, the design of that area of the, the end plate is pretty restrictive, but Toro Rosso were quite clever in the way in which they designed the, the leading edge of their end plate. It sort of steps inwards and then curves out to meet the the, the rest of the end plate. Uh, it's a really novel design. It probably doesn't have a huge impact on performance, but as we know, small things make 
a, a big difference. And I will guarantee you that we will see that design or similar designs feature on other cars this season because teams tend to look at Toro Rosso as an example of how to navigate through the design aspects in a different way. They don't have the budget, so they have to work and think about things laterally. So they often come up with designs that that obviously uh, have deep performance benefits. And we also saw that design that I've just mentioned feature on the Alfa Romeo towards the end of the season. So Alfa clearly looked at that and thought, you know what, there's some performance there. Let's have a see how that works on our car. And like I say, I I do think we'll we'll see that turn up on, on several other cars this year. All right. So without casting shade, then, uh, where would you go next? And and you seem, because I use the word interest, we're probably talking in terms of either least derivative or brings the most extra to the table that has been set for them. Like, oh, I didn't just show up with like a bag of cookies I bought at the store. I brought some wine that I made myself at home. So where do we go next? And and it, in, in terms of interest, it doesn't necessarily have to be good. It can be like, you know, utterly disastrous, but interesting in a disastrous sort of way. I, I don't want to limit you to just the positive things here. Well, I, I think if we're using the word disastrous, there's three teams that fall under that bracket for me um, of, you know, of different standards, let's say. Uh, we have Renault. Right. Um, I, I, again, flummoxed to see where they've, fallen from grace uh they they as you mentioned earlier there's obviously infrastructure and resources and all of those sort of changes going on behind the scenes but how many times can you do that before you say hang on a minute who's making the decisions that aren't working um uh, and and there's clearly things going on at Renault that need to be changed uh from next from 2021 they're going to be supplying just themselves for, for power units as well which is going to put a huge demand on that team in order to 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 retain their place especially in terms of money you know because they won't be gaining any money from having another team being supplied unless obviously something changes in the interim uh, between now and 2021 which I can't actually see anybody wanting the Renault power unit um, in its current state or where they seem to be moving towards in the future. Um, we've obviously got Williams and they are at the top of the disastrous pile and have been for quite some time. And we've talked about this on end of season reviews in, in many, many years now, unfortunately, Matt. Um, things don't seem to be improving at Grove. And uh, again, systematic issues seem to have cropped up that they just can't resolve as we've talked about in the past and what we've just talked about with Renault. Unfortunately, you know, they're, they're, they're not um, where you would like them to be as a, as a manufacturer. And, you know, you really, you really pull for, for a team like Williams, you know, they've been world champions. They have had the best of everything and, they're down in the doldrums and unfortunately it's a long way to pull themselves out of, especially with the base level performance that they've got on their car. Um, to be fair, I think this year's car was actually worse than last year's uh, in terms of downright performance and drivability. Um, you know, that that's one of their biggest issues, it seems, is that they don't only struggle from having problems with the car. They have problems with being able to set it up and get it in a window. Uh, and, as we've talked about already, 
I think their tire management is, is pretty pitiful uh, at stages as well. Um, that and, and that then obviously leads to cascading problems. If you can't get the tires to operate because they're stone cold, because you can't get them into their operating window, then you just lose downforce because you can't drive the car hard enough, and it, it just becomes a, a you know a domino effect. Let's say. So yeah, Williams, unfortunately, as we know, at the bottom of the stack and don't seem to have made any improvement. And I can't see them making improvement again. It's it's one of those um, unfortunate scenarios. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Yeah, I, I'm going to interrupt real quick and say, I mean, how big of a hit was it for them to lose Patty Lowe? And I see that uh, De Beer was at Williams, and he's now headed over to Renault as well. I mean, it's, it, can can we just write this off as a lost year because of the personnel changes that happened right at the beginning of testing, where they didn't even have a car to start running with? Like, they didn't even bring last year's car. And, and then they sell off a big chunk of their business, and I haven't seen it in print anywhere, and I couldn't find the story, but I would swear I've seen at least on Twitter Someone's saying that they're behind again this year. I, I, I don't know if you have any information on that, but what needs to happen to right this ship? Or is is this something that can be saved at this point? I mean, are they just sort of hanging around hoping that 2021 is a big reset button for them? Yeah, but the, unfortunately, Matt, we've been here for 10 years. 2009, I remember the statement that this is going to be a Williams resurgence because they had started to get on top of things in the end of that previous era the car was starting to look a bit better um you know they arrived in 2009 with the double deck diffuser uh, alongside braun and toyota because of the whole japanese connection and where that concept came from was super aguri so you know they arrived with that and they couldn't capitalize on it because the rest of the car just wasn't up to the standard of where it needed to be and it's been the same every single time there's been a regulation change. Yeah, we're gonna we'll make it we'll make a difference when there's a regulation change. They always think that there's going to be this big shift, and suddenly uh, they'll make a leap up the grid because, for whatever reason, they are looking for a silver bullet, a bit like the McLaren scenario we've already talked about. McLaren for years were looking for a silver bullet in terms of performance, and it seems that Williams are, are stuck in that sort of mindset 
where they're looking, always looking for something that is going to make them a huge step forward instead of building a car that is perhaps a little bit vanilla, a little bit beige, uh, and perhaps easier to drive. Uh, what's the point in having extra downforce on a car if you can't actually get the best from it? And I think that's where they were this year. You know, they sort of designed a car that was perhaps from a peak load perspective looked very good in the tunnel compared to last year but when you get it out on track it doesn't translate to performance on the track and that's then them chasing where's that performance so sometimes i think it's perhaps better that you start with something a little bit more plain boring uh, and move on a bit like force india sorry racing point this year very beige vanilla car and they're a different story, though. They didn't t- sort of move on. They got a bit stuck somewhere. Um, but I think that's where Williams have to go. Uh, I think they have to... It's all right saying, let's write off this year as a bad year. But they've been doing that for 10 years. So, like you say, where do they go? Indeed, where does one go? So we've talked Williams. We've talked Renault. Uh, Renault, probably the biggest disappointment in terms of budget and resource. Williams sort of... You were hoping it wouldn't come out that way, but you were kind of expecting it. But you mentioned a trio. So who's your third member of the uh, Catastrophe Kids? Well, I just briefly mentioned them, to be honest. And I know you're going to hate me for this, but Racing Point. I was thoroughly disappointed with them this year. I expected them to 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 take a, a larger step forward, considering the boost of economic growth that they've had due to a certain Canadian arriving on the doorstep. Uh, I expected them to take a, a, a sort of a leap forward. And we haven't seen that from them, unfortunately. We've seen them sort of actually retreat a little. I expected them to go with with uh, McLaren. That's what I expected from them. I expected them to be able to keep up with McLaren. And we've already talked about the disappointment of Renault, but I really wanted a three-way fight between those three because that's what I expected. I expected three of those three teams to be sort of on level footing with one another. And we haven't seen that. You could realistically say that McLaren are the Mercedes of the midfield this year. Uh, They've outscored their opposition because they've done a good job throughout the course of the season. The other two, unfortunately, have not. Uh, Development-wise, I was, you know, we've seen from racing points in the past they tended to bring large update packages uh, that would sort of carry them over in terms of performance from one development to the next whereas this year they've sort of i don't know that the, their development has petered throughout the season uh, they haven't had those lar- larger packages and whether they've decided this year they were just going to hold back slightly and throw more at 2020 or even 2021 you know they may have sight on that already um, but yeah, I am slightly disappointed with, with racing points for 2019. How much of that do you think is down to the fact that they're building essentially a new headquarters? I mean, that's got to cost a little bit of coin to do. And, and maybe they, they just knew this was going to be a year. And then also, um, Bob Fernley left, if I'm remembering correctly. And I was always told that, that Otto Safnauer was the one who was the real genius behind it, but but maybe Bob played a bigger role than we thought. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, when you do have these kind of changes, there's growing pains, isn't there? Everything's changing. Um, the, you have to learn how to make things fit. And having that additional money is not always a good thing. Racing Point or Force India, as they were, have always operated exceptionally well on a lower budget and had to work with the tools that they have available to them. When you suddenly have more tools and more money available to you, you suddenly have to think, well, can I make things better with that money in the short term or do I try to make things better in the long term? And as you say, they are investing heavily in their quarters uh, to the point where obviously they, they expect to be in the sport for a, a long time coming. So they want to make an improvement over a longer period of time. But you know, you can't not focus on the now as well because that is money down the drain you know you you, you've effectively lost money by not winning the prize money because you you finish further down the pile so for me you know that it is a very difficult balancing act in terms of how you spend resource and time and money and development but i do think that you do have to concentrate on the now as well as look into the future all right well it does not escape my notice that there's still a team we haven't talked about and they didn't make your catastrophe kids and they didn't do anything interesting, I guess, in terms of technical development. But they had a thoroughly entertaining and you can't take your eyes off watching them because it's so catastrophic, almost a Jekyll and Hyde season. I mean, they would show up, they would they would do well. They didn't do as well as last year in qualifying. It was clear they didn't have the same car that they did operating the way it did last year. But they would still be pretty competitive in qualifying. And then they would just drive backwards in the race, except for a few mysterious examples that no one really understands. So what is the story with Haas this year? Did they bring anything? Did they change what they were doing? Did they bring more development? Or is it just a case of maybe we shouldn't have had Rich Energy as a sponsor and just kept on doing what we were doing? Well, the reason I didn't mention them, Matt, is because they are my joker. Um, because that's what I think their season was, to be perfectly honest. I don't think they understood what was going on in the slightest with that car. Uh, it was a, a very strange, odd season for, for a team. I mean, when you are running effectively two different cars for most of the season, then you know something's wrong. You know, Magnussen was running an entirely different specification to, to Grosjean for most of the season, because neither of them could get what they wanted from either specification. You know, Magnussen continued to try to develop the car with the parts that were coming through from an aero perspective, which should, in theory, lend itself to 2020, depending on, obviously, the directions that they want to take. But Roman just couldn't deal with that car. It was too peaky for him. You know, he, he, he just couldn't get the right setup window. And again, we're talking about tyres. I think it was predominantly their issue. Uh, for this season is that they just couldn't get those tyres into the, the right operating window. Uh, and that was what was causing them the major drama. You only had to look at how they raced from a strategy point of view uh, to understand that they were having issues with the tyres because they're almost, as spanners would say, rolling the Jensen button card on every race uh, and just trying a different strategy to hope that something worked for them, uh, which inevitably... In most scenarios, it didn't. I mean, you only have to look at Germany, the mix-up uh, that happened in Germany and the winners that came from 
the, the the role of the dice in that scenario and look at what happened to Magnuson. You just drop down the pack and off the back of the, the the chart. So that to me just speaks volumes about what they were going through with their car throughout the season and also what they were going through with the tyres. So for me, yeah, Haas are the jokers of the pack this year, unfortunately for them. Yeah, it is unfortunate because they are such an experimental, low-budget, low-impact team. Uh, but this brings me to something that I did want to talk about. Uh, it came out recently that that Alfa Romeo has finally got a simulator, a driver-in-the-loop simulator, for the weekend. Uh, but we also learned that Haas, I don't even think, ran a simulator over the weekend, if I'm remembering the story from the end of the season correctly. So how can how can I sit here in my little office and have a simulator I can drive around in and a Formula One team like Haas or Alfa Romeo not? What is the story there? And, and how much of an impact do you foresee this having for the upcoming season to them? Okay, so a very different type of simulator, obviously, uh, especially when we're talking about the, the tools that the, uh, the teams connect to. Uh, simulation uh, because of the way that they can reproduce certain criteria uh, in terms of setup and suspension and the way the tires work and not to have a a simulator as you mentioned is problematic uh, in respect of being able to get the best from the car throughout a weekend and I think Mercedes and Ferrari uh, and Red Bull obviously to a slightly lesser extent um really do capitalise on that because it's like having a third driver available to you that can run unlimited hours. He's not restricted by the time that he can spend out on track through free practice sessions because you can use that data also that you've collected in those free practice sessions to hone in uh, on the simulator uh, and allow the driver that is providing the feedback to be able to, to give you a better setup window. We've seen from Ferrari in the past where that has really helped Uh, but it's also hindered them when they've lost those drivers for the simulator, as they did with Daniil Kvyat in 2017, I believe it was, when he was moving back to uh, the Red Bull camp. Uh, He had obviously provided a huge amount of feedback for them in the first start of the season, Uh, but when he left, they did seem to take a a bit of a nosedive uh, when it came to set up at weekends. So, as you say, that all these sorts of tools that are interconnected are things that people perhaps don't think about uh, because it's not in your mind's eye to to see those things uh, when you're watching the racing at a weekend. But all the stuff that goes on at the factory is so important to what is going on at the racetrack uh, because it can have a massive influence over how you hone in on those areas of performance. Uh, especially for for the lead drivers who can then narrow it even further. Okay, fair enough. Um, Real quick, because the question has come up on the regular show. Driver in the loop, what exactly does that mean in a Formula One setting? Well, it's it's all to do with the way that they use their tools connected to the the simulator itself. So they can basically use it to set up the air arm up for the car, let's say, or... They can use it to tune the suspension setup. So it's all about data coming from a driver, not just from a set of tools that are predicted by a a piece of software. Uh, So in the past, uh, you would have run software simulations to to try to uh, 
uh, get a, a narrower window of setup. But now you can use a driver to, to obviously influence those performance parameters as well. So they can then obviously, with their inputs, give you feedback uh, and you then can hone in on that performance even further as well. And obviously, it's not only driver in loop these days. Some of the, the guys have a power unit in loop as well um, because they're running the sort of uh, rigs that allow them to have the power unit set up as well. Like who? like the big teams basically yeah those that can afford it is what you're going to tell me yeah basically what 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 we have to think about is, is is ways in which you can get around not testing so you know the more time that you are testing a car the more you are learning and if you can't put the car on track you bring a virtual track to the car so the likes of mercedes ferrari and red bull all have virtual test tracks let's say where they have driver in loop and power unit in loop in a simulator um so that they're, they're getting a an accurate not only suspension setup aero map they're also working on how that interacts with the power unit and how they use energy throughout a lap you know these are the things that the smaller teams just don't have access to and we can talk about how uh, the FIA are trying to allow teams to have the same maps as one another uh, in terms of energy and fuel maps, that's all well and good. But if your car isn't set up to take advantage of those parameters, then there's no point having them anyway. Yeah, fair enough. And we, as soon as you said power unit in the loop, the, I was thinking, oh, wow, that means that imagine how many different energy recovery maps you could run to find lap time. Because uh, are we going to deploy here? Are we going to deploy here? Are we going to... And so you're just saying the big teams can just, you know, have their driver running endless loops around the circuit with the car set up the way it's going to be in the race. And they can just change one thing at a time and see if they gain time or lose time by it. And that's that's a tremendous advantage. Well, yeah, but they've, they've been doing it for, for years anyway, in terms of uh, using that kind of uh, setup um, on the dynos. Uh, the, you know, that that's how they operate the dynos. They will gain performance by working out how the end the, the power unit will work best around a lap so that will be the first stage of what we're talking about you know they'll they'll run however many dynos for that race weekend to try to figure out how is the best way to deploy energy throughout the course of a lap course of a stint and the course of a race but then obviously if you've got the influence of a race driver on top of that what i always found out what i always find interesting is what simulator people will tell you about drivers because drivers do things that shouldn't be possible. They, they'll they tell you that a piece of software will do something, but a driver will do something very differently. And so it's very important to have that driver's influence within that loop because they will do something that a piece of software cannot or won't think to do or isn't programmed to do. And this is where I feel bad that I didn't bring up the fact that I saw Ford v Ferrari and there was a great scene where they've got like 10 or 20 of the engines sat on the dyno running full Le Mans 24 hours with every input that they traced from the accelerator just to make sure the things would last. And and so this is this is a practice that really does go back quite a long ways. But just think, Matt, the power units now in their weekend allocations are covering a Le Mans distance. It's pretty incredible. And that said, are we meant to be 
maybe a little bit excited to see what our friend Robert Kubica will do now that he's going to be at Alfa Romeo and manning that simulator across the weekends, which I assume means we'll see him in a couple of practice sessions along the way as well. Well, yeah, because cha-ching, he brings some money in that respect as well, doesn't he? So, yeah, I mean, you know I'm a fan of, of Bobby Kay and the the development that he can bring to a Formula One team. Uh, that You know, there's many people that have made that assertion and it, it will be interesting to see uh, the, the level of detail that obviously can be passed from uh, Kubica into uh, the, the race weekend, uh, especially obviously having somebody in the simulator. If Alfa Romeo haven't had that in the past, then it's going to make a, a, a massive difference to them. And now it's going to be time for my favorite part of the show. Since we've sort of started talking about 2020, just briefly looking ahead, what are your expectations? Who do you who are you looking to to steal a march? Who do you think, aside from Williams, which we'll just put off in a corner somewhere, who who do you think might unexpectedly struggle? Is, is, where are your attentions focused? What are your expectations? And and who are you looking for to sort of lead the way in the early part of the season? Because now that they've chucked out the 2020 tires being run we have almost a status quo from season to season. There's not a whole lot of change that's happening. So we should see even more convergence, right? Yeah, but which teams gambled on the 2020 tyres and which teams gambled on keeping the 2019 tyres in terms of the build of their car? Um, Because there will be some differences in how you would see that uh, problem unfold. So, you know, there are going to be, uh, there is going to be a learning part of the season at the beginning once more as teams try to get best from the tyres. But as you say, because we're going into a season with having the tyres that we've already had a season with, I personally think that we're going to see extremely close racing uh, throughout the pack. You know, you're going to have your front teams, which will be very close because they understand the tyres that much better. And then you'll have the teams in the middle that, you know, the likes of McLaren did exceptionally well with the tyres last year. So how do the others catch up to those guys? And then you have, again, the joker in the pack. Haas effectively had to write this year off. So how do they manage that without the resources and the experience of understanding how to then go on from there and build a car without the data that they couldn't gain this year? You know, so I do think that they may struggle, especially at the start of the season, when they then have a new car to try to unlock performance from. But once they do unlock that performance, then I do think they will make uh, uh, gravitate towards the front of the, the midfield, perhaps. Because let's be honest, they were very good uh, in 2017. Uh, so I don't see any reason to see why they won't make progress if they can unlock the, the performance of the car. But you know, the, the big question mark for me really is over Renault and where they fit into the grand scheme of things and can they turn things around? And if they can't turn things around in 2020, are we going to see them in 2021? That is the question mark for me. Even though they've already committed to 2024, you think they might just sell on? Yeah, we've seen it. We've seen it before. You know, unfortunately, a contract isn't worth the paper it's written on and especially in Formula One. Uh, you can quite easily sell 
uh, your opportunity to race in Formula One. There are many people out there that would jump at the opportunity to be able to take that racing opportunity from them. Uh, you know, we've seen them go out of the sport in the past. And if it doesn't align from them from a commercial aspect and from a monetary point of view, I do see the potential for them to walk away from the sport again. Yeah, I would give them through 21 because I think all along that's been the argument that's been made. We're going to come back as a manufacturer. Our big shot is going to be 21 when all the regulations change to have all that money make a difference uh, more meaningfully. And I think if they don't get it done in 21, then then you might be absolutely right. But you're probably more right than me anyway. And even though we could continue to talk for hours. There's so many things in my notes, the new, the new wheels, the 21 regulations, the Ferrari thing that we did not get to. Were they cheating? Pro tip. All of the teams are cheating always. They were just getting more caught. That's it. Who, who gets caught the most? That, that's what it's about. All of them are running illegal cars. Always, but at least they didn't put their floor on upside down. Mentioning no names. None at all. Okay. All right. So if you want to take a deeper dive into this subject, I'm going to absolutely encourage you to check out summersf1.co.uk. And while you're at it, be sure and hit the link for the latest Missed Apex episode as well. Summers, where can we find you? Well, as always, Matt, the best place to find me is on Twitter. And I'm summersf1 over there. Although I am taking a slight hiatus over this winter period uh just not quite uh keeping myself in the loop because i've been doing this for far too long now and i needed a break (laughs) fair enough as for me i'm at matt pt55 on the twitters come check me out say hi tell me i'm wrong about all the things because frankly mostly i am or at least according to my 15 year old daughter and remember chicks dig heels wounds cause scars and glory is a fungible concept under certain philosophical precepts this has been tech time it's been too long i've got like nine shows worth of questions after this show But I'm not going to make you stay up till three in the morning answering them. Yeah, it's 20, 20 to one. Hey guys, Spanners here. I hope you enjoyed your tech time. I've just dropped in to give you a bonus chat with the former commercial director of Benetton, Brian Sims. Uh, Brian is well known in the F1 commercial circles and is very much a motorsport industry personality. Brian drops in some great stories about former F1 drivers at his house, uh, the events he's put on as both a commercial director and a track organiser. So let's drop into the interview as I'm welcoming Brian to the shed. Yeah, it's always a great pleasure, Richard. Now, you have so much to say in the world of uh, Formula One business, marketing, sponsorship. Uh, We first met through your book, You Don't Have to Be a Champion to Be a Winner. Indeed. When you were at Autosport, was it specifically to do with that book or is this just part of your general your general tour? Well, it, it turns out that I've been going to the uh, Autosport show in different guises since way back in about 1969. Um, then it moved to the NEC in 2002. 
It's great. It, it's a great meeting place. It's a tremendous place for business networking. I meet so many friends. In fact, one of, one of the great friends I haven't seen for years, Jim Wright, who was the marketing director for Williams Formula One for many years. We met up and sat there talking about sponsorship. So that's why I go. Yeah. Do you get free parking at the NEC, though? Uh, I do, but not many people do. It's like 18 quid or something like that. But Well, the hotel pricing <laughs> up there is, is getting quite extraordinary. Um, but uh, anyway, there we go. I've got <laughs> what this, can you do? I've got this vision now of just, uh, and I, I say old in the kindest possible terms, uh, as in former commercial directors all gathering uh, at some great conference at Autosport NEC. Yeah, it, it is wonderful. Um, it takes longer. Every year you go to the NEC, to the Autosports show, it takes longer to go from A to B because you know more people and they all go, hello, Brian, haven't seen you for a while. What are you doing? Glad you're still around. <laughs> so it, uh, it, it's quite nice, but it's also a little bit of a sobering thought at times. Glad you're still around. That's that's not a nice greeting, Brian. Uh, so what was your, what's your motivation when you're going round? Cause it, like you say, it's such a vast area, so many different speakers. Do you, do you make a beeline for, I mean, there wasn't a great, uh, presence from the teams this year. No. One of the things that's happened, Richard, is that um, the internet and social media has made a great difference. At one time, you went to the Autosport show to find out what was new and the new cars, new helmet designs, everything that's new. Today, we know all that because it's thrown in your face on social media. So I think the vibrancy of the show has has probably gone away as a matter of course almost. But it's still one of the great meeting places. And as the, the founder of the MIA, uh, I'm absolutely thrilled that the International Business Lounge is run by the MIA, and it's the meeting place at the show. Uh, just remind us what MIA stands for. Motorsport Industry Association. It's the body that represents the nine billion pound a year world leading motorsport industry. And uh, by their stall every year, there is a, a gold statue of you, Brian Sims, with, with milk and honey pouring down the sides of it. I assume they honor you in this way as the founder. Uh, I don't think so. No, I was uh, made an honorary life member. Um, which makes you sound very old in itself. It does. But no, it's, it's, a, it's a great organization and, and it brings together so many very clever people in our industry who've done amazing things to bring this as the world leader, you know, to, to Britain. We really are recognized worldwide as being the place to talk about motorsport. Uh, Brian, I, I wanted to talk to you about driving schools because I know you ran your own driving school uh, and you mentioned, you know, recently about your, your friend Jim Russell. Race driving school, that should be. Race not, driving not just school. driving school, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, of course. No, I wasn't expecting, you know, like reverse parking. Oh, yeah, sorry <laughs> if I invoked that image, yeah. Brian. Uh, being an instructor in a racing school, believe me, is a lot more dangerous <laughs> than being on the public roads, I think. Um, yeah, Jim Russell, when I, he wasn't a friend of mine uh, as such, but I had had the pleasure of meeting him. But Jim Russell uh, passed away, sadly, in um, 2019 at the age of 96, but he was responsible for building what was probably the most uh, amazing school, racing school ever. And, and I was lucky enough to uh, do a course there. What he did, he made motor racing available to the man in the street. You could pay a fiver and go and run around, wanted to learn how to go around a particular bend at Snetterton. Then next weekend, you could put another fiver and learn the next bend and put it all together. Fiver? 
well, literally in those days, probably it was about that. It a wasn't farthing. expensive. A farthing, yeah. yeah. As we talk about in motor racing terms. And um, uh, interestingly, this year, Richard, I was at the uh, MIA Awards dinner within the show, and the guy by the name of John Kirkpatrick, who was on my founding committee when we started the Autosport show, he was my first instructor at the Jim Russell School at Snetterton when I went there back in 1972. And he spoke about Jim, and it was very moving. John was, um, uh, you know, his voice broke down several times talking about this amazing man, how he was way ahead of his time, Jim Russell, and how desperately we need his mindset today. Well, well, certainly. I, I was reading a, a recent uh, article of yours in Paddock magazine where you were talking about Formula One being the playground for the rich. And, and maybe it doesn't have to be like that. But that certainly is the impression we get. Even Lewis Hamilton complaining that his friend was, was leapfrogged recently for a pay driver. You look at Lance Stroll, which is a situation that kind of makes me ugh, wince a little bit. And then you've got Williams filling their seats uh, with pay drivers such as Sorokin and now to, to, you know, Latifi as well. Is is it getting better? You know, would Jim Russell be looking at this world and saying, well, actually, maybe it is just a playground for the rich? Uh, he might be saying it is a playground for the rich because that's what it's become. But the the thing, if you if you want to really make uh, put a red rag to a bull with me, Richard, um, it's this thing of, oh, well, it's always been like that. Because that is the excuse that you come up with from the Formula One teams, the governing body of the sport, all of these sort of people. Um, they've said it, well, it's always been that. It hasn't always been like that. Um, and I've tried, and I'm still trying very hard in my way, to bring some bloody reality to the situation and get young people, give them a chance to get into the sport. Not everybody wants to be a Formula One driver, for goodness sake, but our sport is geared towards Formula One. And there are, there are a lot of, I have a lot of very strong thoughts on it, as you gathered. So probably don't start me on that now. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, we've been, we're lucky enough. No, I'm definitely going to. Uh, we've been lucky enough here in the shed, you know, to speak to drivers who've, who've gone through the, the motor racing ladder and fallen off at various points due to finances. Like it's a massive step up when you start getting into cars and then try to go to F3, F2. The cost is ridiculous. I think an F2 driver, had said had said to me that uh, it was something like six million pounds overall from beginning to end that journey into F two, which certainly does make it the playground of the rich. But even even if we just had you know motorsport being more accessible at any level, you would see the overall standard rise. From my point of view, it's hard to see that actually does F one have the best drivers because we know an awful lot of really good. GT drivers, lower category drivers, and amazing carters who don't get a sniff of that ladder. Well, I personally think that the organisers of Formula One or the owners of Formula One should be had up under the Trade Description Act because Formula One should be about the best 22 or 24 racing drivers in the world. It clearly isn't. And, and I think that is bad. And, and I put forward in Paddock Magazine some ways where that could change overnight. But the problem is, like anything in life, vested interests. There are vested interests in not seeing change. If you wanted to to build a world champion now and you had infinite money, I mean, you could just, you could have open auditions, couldn't you, for 300 carters and pick the, you know, even kids who'd never carted before, put them in like a big 
X Factor style karting competition, and you'd, you'd probably produce a world champion that way. Yeah, but they'd still need the money. That's the, <laughs> that is the problem. Yeah. And and what we need to do is to look at putting and changing the emphasis. At the moment, the emphasis to getting into Formula One is a driver brings money, unless they are something incredible like a Michael Schumacher or otherwise. But most drivers accept they have to bring money. Switch that round and put the emphasis that the team has to find the money and go out and find a driver with the skill level and the license to race in Formula One, and immediately the situation changed. How, not how? how can we do that? Well, it's not rocket science. What, what I've proposed is that at the end of each year, we have a qualifying event in the Middle East. We have 24 Formula Two cars paid for by the Formula One organizers. We get the top 10 drivers, sorry, the top 10 drivers in Formula One in the championship get an automatic license for the following year. The drivers below 10th place have to go through and race in qualifying races, heats in Bahrain or wherever it is, they race against the top six in Formula Two, the top three in Formula Three, and some wild cards. And they have to earn, by winning those races, a Formula One license. Oh, and they then- haven't got a Formula One license. However much money they have, they cannot race in Formula One the next year. So suddenly, the teams are duty bound to go and find the sponsorship to bring in the drivers that are qualified at the skill and are qualified through that weekend to be racing in Formula One. I have to say, Brian, I, I loved your your being done under the Trade Descriptions Act because you, you are you're, you're painting this picture and this alternate solution that seems simple on paper. But I mean, who would who would be the the power? Is it Jean Tot? Is it the teams? Is it the FIA? Is it Liberty? Who who would be able to who who do we nudge? Who do we tweet to make this happen? Well, Chase Carey at uh, Liberty for a start. He is the man who runs Liberty Media at this current time. Um, But I know what the reply will be. Oh, well, it's always been this way and that's how it will stay. Why? Because if the motor racing, the Formula One teams suddenly were reliant on their marketing departments going out and getting money, that's a very different story from a cure drivers, the Lance Strolls of this world, knocking up with goodness knows how many million in their pockets. So why would they want to change things? And, this, and that is your problem. Well, this leads nicely on to, you know, teams getting sponsorship, uh, particularly McLaren, you know, I want to talk about because even like, yeah, say even Ron Dennis, Ron Dennis seemed to bleed sponsors towards the end of his, his tenure. And Zach Brown was meant to be this, this sponsorship speciality business guy coming in that was going to rescue that situation, stop McLaren being this plain liveried car that it had been for so many years. So, uh, you know, I'm wondering, as a ex-commercial F1 guy, do, do you have an opinion on Zach Brown? Is is he the marketing guy that everyone says he is? Yeah, Zach, I'd met Zach, and I very nearly went to work for Zach Brown. No. Um, what, where? Yes. Well, we, we discussed the possibility of my becoming their um, European, Middle East and Africa vice president. Oh, wow. Um, we, we didn't um, agree a deal at the end of it all. But I have a, a lot of respect for Zach in his role as uh, a sponsorship man. He brought in um, some very, very big sponsorships over the years, and he understands the business. But why we're not seeing big sponsorships coming into Formula One? I don't know, because there are companies out there who are very, very willing to have discussions. The problem is the feedback I get, and remember, I'm no longer in Formula One. 
the feedback I get is Formula One has lost the plot. They don't really understand what the business world needs anymore. And that has always, in my opinion, been the case. Oh, okay. So let me dig a bit deeper for, for those of us, for, for, for those listening who include me, who might not quite understand that. When you say uh, they don't understand what the business is need i think we touched on actually a little bit last time you came and spoke here but isn't it like in the in the olden days they just wanted it as a a growing the brand thing plaster our name everywhere let us use the the executive suites uh give us some corporate entertainment at the grand prix you know what is it that that businesses want now that formula one can't provide well well for a start yeah um the tobacco industry in a way spoiled formula one because all they wanted as you very rightly said richard and you're just doing it now with your uh, can there, is brand awareness. <laughs> well, we're not, sh- we're not showing wanted. the video of this one, so yeah. I won't that be would sponsored. Have been, that would have been worth half a million pounds sponsorship oh, yeah. already of what you've shown. Coke Zero, I'd love a bit. If they're willing, I'm, I'm here waiting, Brian. They can come get yeah. me. Yeah. The, the, the key to getting sponsorship, and, and it's the only skill I've ever had, is the ability to get sponsorship, is sitting talking to companies about some of the issues that face them at the right time now. Not 10 years ago, not 20 years in the future. What is actually out there now? And we've got all manner of things. There's perception. Yes, we can afford to go Formula One, but can we afford to be seen to be spending all that money in Formula One? And the answer is probably not. But if you add in some major uh, corporate social responsibility programs like education, using motorsport to attract kids into engineering, using it to uh, help develop sustainability programs, suddenly companies are far more interested. The difficulty with Formula One is it's been very set in its ways for far too long and reliant on brand awareness, hospitality, and PR as the key factors. Those things have gone. Those things now are dead in the water. And I, I, I'm very lucky. I did a, a lot of lecturing for the World Academy of Sport with World Rugby, International Cricket Council, International Hockey Federation. Other sports have got it right. They've worked out what companies need these days to be able to say to their market, their customers, their shareholders, we are going into sponsorship because it's going to do not only our bottom line good, but it's going to help the world at large, whatever that is, whether it's sustainability, um, education or whatever. We're not doing that properly. Well, it feels like we've kind of we've solved everything here, to be honest, Brian. We, we've sorted out the driver standards uh, issue. Uh, we, we, we've sorted young drivers and, and how we're going to assess them on merit. And uh, we've uh, we've helped F1 increase their awareness of what brands need from a company. I'll, I'll make the phone call to Chase Carey. Still not picking up my calls. I can only keep uh, keep trying, <laughs> Brian. Uh, you, you mentioned there that F1 are going into universities. What what is it that F1 does? does in these universities I, I suppose they're kind of scratching their own back because that's where they get the engineers of tomorrow from places like Loughborough yeah I, I, I was fortunate to, to work as a consultant the Formula One consultant to Oxford Brooks University for six years and that is without doubt one of the two or three leading universities in the world for supplying Formula One um, and that that is a taken now we accept that the problem is, on the business and the commercial side of the sport, the same attention has not been focused oh. to getting people to understand it. So you've got, so you've got, got lots of people set up to be engineers, but not the people to come in and be Brian Sims. That's right. And that is what is missing, because selling sponsorship is a skill. Um, ask any engineer in Formula One, and they'll say, 
sponsorship getting a skill? No, it, it's just gift of the gab. It isn't. Believe me, the research and work you have to do to bring a company like FedEx, like Marconi, like Accenture into Formula One with multi-million pound deals is a lot of work and it is a skill. Can I, can I put you on the spot and like play yeah. you, you are, you are, you know, current F1. What, what are the big brands, if you're able to name any at all, that you might be looking at now and go, that's a, that's a, a brand that I would go sniffing at if I was F1, if I was a team. What, what I do, and I've always done this, it's why when I did the deal with Benetton, uh, with FedEx, I also had a deal on the table, exactly the same deal with DHL at the same time. And I work, <laughs> always work by industry sector. Wow. I targeted six major career logistics companies, DHL, Parcel Force Worldwide, Kern and Nagel, UPS, FedEx, and DHL. Nice. And I ended up with two deals. Why wouldn't I? Because what works for FedEx is probably going to work just as well for DHL or UPS. And, and also, Brian is simultaneously uh, appearing on six other Formula One podcasts as well. So you are brutal in this regard and your competitiveness. But I also hear you're a bit of a wild party animal as well. What's what's all this, uh, before I let you go, Brian, what's all this about you partying with James Hunt at your house, no less? <laughs> well, in, in 1980, I became manager of the Grand Prix circuit in South Africa. Ah, nice. Thanks to Mr. Max Mosley, who who got me that job. And um, the first Grand Prix of the year came round, and James Hunt had just retired, and he was starting to work with Murray Walker as a commentator in Formula One. Um, and I held a party at my house, which was right opposite the track, and a few of the drivers who I knew, the British drivers, like Jeff Lees, um, Derek Daly, and so forth, came to my house for the party, and Max Mosley and James Hunt arrived. And we had the most fantastic evening and fun. James was meant to be driving the next morning in a tractor race that I'd organized on the track. <laughs> I've got 24 tractors from Deutsch, the big German tractor manufacturer. Eight Formula One drivers agreed to drive. Eight members of a TV soap opera in South Africa. Eight sporting greats. And it was a race for charity. Two laps of the Kyle Army Grand Prix circuit. Did this yes, happen? This happened? It happened. Carlos Reutemann, <laughs> for him, won the yeah. tractor race. The next, the next day, he, or uh, that afternoon, he won the Grand Prix, except that it wasn't a, a world championship race because there was a big political problem and they didn't get points. Nevertheless, James was meant to drive <laughs> and he didn't arrive the next morning. Because of you, because of your party. Uh, no, it wasn't. It was more to do with, I think, one or two air stewardesses who wanted to know the way to uh, Johannesburg or something. Not, like. No, no, right. Don't ruin it. The headline is... Brian Sims made James Hunt party so hard he missed a tractor race. That is, that's the headline. There is a story, though, that goes with it. I have got the most wonderful letter from James. Really? I have. It personally addressed to me, and it starts off, Dear Brian, I write to you with my tail firmly between my legs. Not only did I let you down, the charity, the fans, and everybody else involved in putting on that race, I let myself down very badly. And to me, that says a great deal about a person, that a world champion can write to a, a, a nobody like myself and apologize. And I, I had dinner with James three months before he died, together with Tony Jardine, the ITV presenter. 
And I saw, I had a wonderful evening sitting talking to James. He lost most of his money. He hadn't even got a car. His car was on bricks outside his house. He couldn't afford to run it. He lost the so-called friends who deserted him when the money went. But I saw the real side of James and what a lovely, lovely man he was. But my God, he knew how to enjoy himself. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, that is a fantastic story, Brian. And and you have to kind of almost you have to almost ask this question to anyone who's had that kind of interaction. When you saw when you saw Rush, did you recognize because he came across as a warm, friendly, fun loving character? Do you think they did him justice? Yes, I think they did him justice. I, I, uh, a couple of years ago, I, I met up with Nicky Lauder in Bahrain, and I was talking to him about Kyle Army, and he was saying it was his favorite winter testing venue. And I said, tell me, Nicky, the film, did, do you think it was accurate? And he said, yeah, it was incredibly accurate. He said, in fact, scaringly accurate. He said, <laughs> I, I hadn't realized how bad I was in there, how they, you know, badly hurt. Mm. But he said, yeah, he said they got James pretty good, didn't they? I said, yeah, I think they did. Well, that was fantastic. Thank you so much for dropping into the shed, Brian. And not just oh, dropping a pleasure. that commercial knowledge, but I just, I can't get my, can we do that? Can we not organise a tractor race now? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine Leclerc and Vettel going da- bombing down the, the straight in tractors? It, it was an amazing event. And, and the crowd, in those days, they could get up close to the fencing. They used to drive the cars at Kyle Army build scaffolding and watch. The atmosphere was just extraordinary. And there are these 24 tractors. And can I just add a little postscript to that? Totally. There was a South African girl called Desiree Wilson who had been racing Formula One in England in the Aurora series. Ken Tyrrell approached her and said, would you like to drive one of two Tyrrells at Kyle Army? And she said, love to. And he said, well, we need money. And he told her how much. They asked me if I could get sponsorship. I contacted the German tractor company and they sponsored her in the Tyrrell. And if you look in the, your archives, photographs, you'll see this Tyrrell Formula One car with Deutz right down the side. And that was because I got the sponsorship from the tractor company. Well, what year was that? Because I guess that was 1981. But because it wasn't a championship scoring race. It, it, what happened? It was a battle between FISA and FOCA, the two organizations, Jean-Marie Balest and Bernie Eccleston. And it was over to to do, I won't even go into what the politics were, but it was politics as usual. And the Italian teams refused to come down to Kyle Army. Um, Ferrari, Alfa Romeo, and um, oh, I can't remember the other one, but they didn't race. And so the race didn't get world championship points. Reutemann won the race. And it was probably because of the experience of the tractor race in the morning that it helped. Oh, I think there's absolutely no As doubt. one does. <laughs> you can take full credit for that. Brian Sims, author of the book, You Don't Have to Be a Champion to Be a Winner. Still available? Indeed. Oh, very much so. Yes, it's uh, going, going very, very well. And uh, people are enjoying all the anecdotes of the stories of when of times gone by. You can find that online or through the publisher, Austin McCauley. I believe uh, that is published through. Fantastic. And guys listening out there, I don't think we're going to manage to beat the Reutemann tractor racing story for the rest of the off season. However, do feel free to join us on Sunday, every Sunday at 8pm for our live stream. Uh, Follow us uh, at Mist Apex F1 on Twitter. Myself at Spanners Ready. Brian can be found at briansims.co.uk. What are you on Twitter, Brian? Um, 
at Brian Sims 4. Wherever you catch us next, be brave, because wounds heal, chicks dig scars, and glory lasts forever. This was Missed Apex. We've got to do the music, Brian. It makes us seem all fancy and proper, you see. I like it. It's, it's great. all part of and it. You do, you do a fabulous job. You really do. Aww. I'm very impressed. Very kind, Brian. And- cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.